From Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Hey, I'm Andrew Osinga. This is The Pivot. We are back. I couldn't be more excited. You know, the first season of this podcast was an experiment, uh, just something I thought, eh, this would be so fun to do. I, I think it needs to be made. Let's let's do it. And um, the response was so overwhelming that I had to keep going. So season two is here because you asked for it and you supported it. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about the guests that we've got, the interviews I've already done and that are coming up. I think you're just going to love it. Uh, some fun updates really quick. We've got a new website, everybodypivots.com. That's now the official uh, website of this podcast. We're, we'll be keeping you up to date on the podcast and creating other ways for you to be involved as we go on. Um, there's a Patreon page up there. Some of you asked about that. That's where you can chip in a couple bucks a month and keep this podcast happening. It's a little thing, but it would be amazing <laughs> uh, to allow this to keep happening. And um, on that note, we've got a couple sponsors that are helping share some of those costs now, and that is awesome. Uh, yes, that does mean I'm going to read a couple ads here in a minute, but please listen, check them out. Thank them for supporting The Pivot by going to their sites, visiting. Um, they're, they're, they're helping make this happen. So uh, I am so excited uh, for this new season and to kick it off with this great guest, Sally Lloyd-Jones. Many of you have heard of her. You've got her books on your shelf, probably specifically the Jesus Storybook Bible, which has sold over two, maybe three million copies now. I don't remember. Um, you know, I've known Sally for a number of years. We've been a part of a lot of events, concerts. Um, but the truth is, most of the time that I have spent with her, we've been on stage together. Uh, we haven't actually gotten to hang out a whole lot Um a few meals here and there, but but not a ton. And so it was such a treat to get to sit and actually have this conversation. Uh, I knew she was just wise and brilliant and delightful, and she was even more so. Uh, you are going to love this conversation. I know I did. It makes me wish I kind of had like a British nanny growing up. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that, but it's kind of true. Um, you are going to love this. I love this. So I am so excited to share with you right after this word from our sponsor my conversation with the amazing Sally Lloyd-Jones hey friends check out Blind Tiger Record Club they're a vinyl record subscription box service delivering great vinyl to your door each month they are the only club that sends you music from the genre you choose all their vinyl are new and sealed, full-length, 12-inch records from artists of today. Many are double albums, 180 gram, and in some cases, color variant, hard-to-find imports. Awesome stuff. Blind Tiger also has a record store, stocked with hundreds of other vinyl titles, club merch, including t-shirts, hats, other club items. They've even got record players and headphones. Perfect stuff for Christmas presents you got to check this out for the uh, discerning music lover in your life. Go to blindtigerrecordclub.com to check out the store and become a member today. Uh, their vinyl subscription membership plans start at $25.99 a month, and you get the monthly vinyl plus extra goodies. There's even a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Use the coupon code THEPIVOT 
all caps, one word, at checkout to get your first month's vinyl subscription box for half off. That's $12.99 for a new vinyl. Crazy! Don't miss this. BlindTigerRecordClub.com. Your vinyl, your choice. The Pivot is also brought to you by New College Franklin. New College Franklin is a four-year Christian liberal arts college in Franklin, Tennessee, dedicated to excellent academics and a rich community. They offer a unique opportunity to become part of a learning family that is focused on educating the whole person. To learn more, visit newcollegefranklin.org. You spent quite a while editing other people's books before you wrote your own book. I did. Did you do that in England? Did you do that here? Yeah, in England. Well, I started in England. My first job was at Oxford University Press in Oxford, England, which was fantastic. It was. I don't regret any of it. (laughs) In fact, that was more like going, it was like being at college. We would do things like have pantomimes every, okay, so people don't always know what pantomimes are, but in England, you know, they're they're these classic things you do that happen at Christmas and they sound insane, but you have, you, you have the the pantomime dame, which is usually a very large man dressed up as a woman. But this has been going back for till the medieval time. So there's nothing new about this. This is ancient. And it's just a fun family show. And, it, and it's got, you know, it might be, um, but the whole thing about pantomime is you're interacting with the audience and it's all this fun and games happening. And it's hot. I'm really not doing a good job. Everyone's going to think, well, that sounds really dull. But Anyway, every Christmas at OUP, we had a pantomime and they enlisted people to write that. So the head of the children's department, the picture book department, got me involved in that because I like writing. So I would write funny sketches that would be used. So we'd put that on at Christmas. So it wasn't really like a, it wasn't like a job. It was like a college. And then it was Hmm. set in this beautiful building that had a quad in the middle. So it was just like one of the Oxford colleges. And I just had so much fun. So, um... But it was there. I got that job because I started, well, I always loved writing, but mm-hmm. I did the classic thing of, well, I'm not good enough to write. So what am I good at? Oh, I seem to quite like art history. So I'll study art history. So I studied art history, even though, you know, it was what I did at university, mm. though everyone said that wouldn't lead anywhere. But I liked it, so I studied it. (laughs) And Mm. then I thought, okay, I've done art history, so now I have to work in a gallery. This is the kind of crazy thinking that you have when you start out. So I thought, oh, I'm going to have to, well, maybe I should work in a gallery, or either that, or I like words, so maybe journalism or editing. That's my thought process. And the first job I got was OUP. Mm. And it it was fantastic. I was there for three years, learned so much about publishing, I worked in the school textbook division, which sounds dull, except I had a wonderful boss. And really, it was the best training you could get, even for what I do now as a writer. But as an editor, you had to work with photographs, um, illustrations, captions, indexes, contents lists. So as an editor, you got a real excellent training. And OUP were like old-fashioned publishing, which was ideal for being trained you you really learned all the correct ways of doing things hmm. which still are in my head so I'm kind of a nightmare for publishers to work with because I I bring the we had this book called the Oxford University Press rules for compositors and typesetters and that's all in my brain so when poor publishers you know they send me proofs and I'm sort of outraged that it's not done correctly and properly like we do in England you know so I have to fight off that oh my gosh um, but that was my first job, and 
I loved it. So were you were you writing textbooks or people were sending no, you the text? You they, were just taking all the different yeah, pieces. Yeah, I was I was basically a secretary slash editorial assistant. Okay. But my boss was so great, he gave me lots of projects and sent me on training classes. So I start I really learned the business. And then the next job so I loved writing, but I was not sure what I was to write. So I would write like sketches for to use at church in the church mm. group and I was always I loved acting and I loved making people laugh so I put the writing side in in that sort of side of my life but my job was editing so but down the corridor from me at OUP was all the laughter and it was coming from the children's picture book department and wow. I thought then oh I think that's where the fun is and you see in picture books you get illustrators and the whole book is illustrated and it just seemed like so then I thought okay well maybe I could maybe if I'm really lucky I could edit picture books Hmm. so I wasn't so all of this is like you know fast forward all these years I realized I wasn't really thinking very big I was thinking quite small I thought that was the best thing I could do which of course I'm not looking down on because it's an amazing skill but I wasn't allowing my dream of writing. That wasn't even a question. It was just mm. this thing in the back. And I hadn't even really decided picture. I hadn't decided children's books. I just like writing. So I would try plays, terrible moaning poems, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I know nothing uh, you about that. Songwriters don't know anything about Oh, they about know nothing about that. Poems. No, I'm sure no one else has ever done that. Yeah. I, I've, I've got an agreement with my friend Todd that if I... If something terrible happens to me and I am no more, he's to come into my house and burn all my journals. <laughs> but I, I yeah, when you see so like a, a, a famous writer's posthumous journals come out, it's yeah, always oh, it's awful. That's the stuff they didn't yeah. want people no. to, to see. No, and actually, I was making him agree to that before I was ever had any kind of fame. It was just so frightening to think anyone would want to see these terrible poems and the moaning that goes on in them. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was. So I, so that was my first clue about children's books, that all the hmm. laughter. So I could see that there was fun happening. Um, but when I look at it, at OUP, I, did, I was writing. I was doing that pantomime, and I was doing the Christmas play. And, you know, it was fun, and I really loved it. And then I was also getting to perform in it. So okay. little clues were happening. Um, hmm. But truthfully, the first, if you go all the way back to the beginning of, you know, when I was a little girl, because they often say what you were before you became what you think everyone, what everyone wanted you to be. Hmm. Like when you're about six or seven, before you're sort of self-conscious too much, Mm -hmm. whatever you love to do then often clues you into either what you end up doing as your passion or something that is very important in your life. And for me, one of the things I love to do, one of the first books I ever read was Edward Lear's The Complete Nonsense, which if anyone doesn't know what that is, they have to go and find it. I don't. It's a very, it was like he was like in the 19th century yeah, it, I think 19th century. And he was a bo- he was an incredible botanist and he did incredible illustrations of birds and stuff. But he also on the side did limericks and he illustrated oh. them himself and they're insane. Oh, I love that. Oh, they're, they're so crazy. I love a limerick. Oh, yes. And of course, <laughs> as a seven-year-old, this was my first book I ever read. I open up the book and I think, I had no idea you could have so much fun inside a book. I didn't know it was allowed. I thought books were all about rules and how mm. you're to behave and serious and learning. And this was the first book I just went mad on. And my poor friends and relatives, I started inflicting limericks on them. I'd make them up all the time. I'd, when anyone had a birthday, I'd 
I'd draw a little comic with limericks and drawings. And mm. so basically, as a seven year old, I knew something that I have taken <laughs> far too many years to find out that I was having fun inside books. And here I am now, which I think is what I'm still doing. But it took me a lot of time to come back to what I knew as a seven year old. So I tell that story because sometimes you have clues about what really, before you were even conscious or self conscious. You just reacted to something. And I think that's when you can pick up a clue, about, maybe about how God's planted something in you that's your particular thing. Hmm. For me, it was silliness and fun and words and making people laugh, you know? Wow, that's so fascinating. So, okay, so tell me in the timeline, those people are laughing down the hall. What yes. books are they writing, by the way? Are there any no books I would know that were being written down the hall while you were there? Well, the editor... There was the the main editor called Ron Heapy, mm -hmm. but the guy working for him was called David is called David Fickling, and he is in England one of the top publishers. He published Philip Pullman, who if anyone oh, uh, knows, yeah. so he's you know really wow. world class editor, and he was a friend and very fun and rascally, and um, so Philip Pullman would be the most famous. Mm -hmm. Now he Philip wasn't published by OUP, but that's the famous name you'd attach with gotcha. David Fickling. Okay. So did you go from, from that job at OUP to America? No, then I went to London. Okay. I got a job in a completely different thing, in a packager, which is a, a basically, it's like a magazine versus a book. Even okay. though it is books, it's basic, and they're not so much happening now, but back then you had, if, you, if for instance, a publisher wanted to do a flat book, back then they weren't really able to do the production. They didn't know how to do it. So they would hire a packager who's expert at doing flat books. And the, f the packager would produce the whole book, but it would come out in the imprint of the publisher. Wow. And I worked for a, for a packager. So what it meant, and it was a great training. The, the guy at OUP, one of the presidents, advised me to do it because he said, if you combine what you've learned at OUP with this fast-paced packaging world, it'll be a fantastic training because mm -hmm. it you you will have to work so much faster you'll have to be really creative and it was true it was a little bit nightmarish you know the deadlines were insane compared mm. to what OUP you couldn't find more different and it was it was in um Michelin House which is right near Harrods beautiful you know the tire company's um original I guess one of their original offices and it was all tile beautiful wow but what I found so it was an incredible workout because in a packager, they don't really have a budget to pay an author. So what happens is they'll come to it, and I was an editor, so they'd come to me and they'd say, okay, we need to produce four books and they need to have, they need to be able to squeak and maybe tick. We need ticking and squeaking <laughs> and scratch, the, scratch and sniff or something, you know, something yeah. like that. And you have to come up with what would those books be. So, so you're writing the book. So without realizing, without me even realizing, I end up writing as an editor. Hmm. because I have to come up with the four different titles. They have to all work. I have to make up a story for each of those four books. So it was a really amazing workout. So without me, it was like through the back door I was getting trained. Wow. In coming up with ideas. And also, you know, even though they had no budget, then, of course, there was no budget to pay the writer, and you've already come up with the title. So you end up, the editor writes it. So you're writing it, mm -hmm. and also you're working with artists. So you're, So the training I was getting was... You know, I'd been dreaming of working in picture books, but the truth was I was getting a really good training in writing picture books without me realizing. 
so fantastic when you look back you had no idea but if you'd asked me at the time I would have been saying well I'm not really brave enough to do what my dream is and this is second best we judge our stories halfway through our stories and you know you never Mm. judge a novel halfway through a novel well if you do you're kind of you've missed it haven't you You have to wait for a you it's only in looking back that you can see the pattern but at the time I was telling myself you know, oh, it's a shame you can't be more brave. You're not really doing your dream. What a shame. Other people are doing their dream. You know, really judging myself. I think I still need to learn not to do that, <laughs> you know? Yes, but I now do. I, I wish I could go back and say because to that person. Because if I'm not doing the thing this yeah. exact moment right. that maybe I do right. over the years, yeah. I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't realize. So I, I like to tell people that story mm. too because – depending on where you are in your story, you may be judging in a way you would never do in the middle of a novel, you know? Oh, that is wonderful. So I have so I have a couple questions after that. The first is when the, an editor, they come to you and they say you have to come up with a book that squeaks. What, <laughs> yes. what is that? <laughs> do you remember the titles? Oh, of I have books? one. I, well... <laughs> I do. I mean, they were in, they were so well. Actually, one of them. There was one that you had to have a phone. You know, the old-fashioned phone. Okay. You ring, and that one I really liked. And that was who can I call? And I really liked that one. It worked really well. It was all like you know, the cat. Someone's up a tree, so the cat calls the hippo, and the hippo calls this, and they're all going to try and help this. I think the kitten's up the tree, and the the elephant's going to help, and then the elephant calls the cat, and the cat's going to help, and they all go off to get up this tree. They climb up the tree, and the kitten falls down, but they're all up the tree. So that was, I thought that was quite clever. <laughs> so it was really That's fun. Fantastic. But sometimes you were so pushed and under such a deadline, you'd get kind of wacky. And I had such the best people to work with. And one time I was thinking there was, a, you had to do it with a ticking. So mm. I came up with the idea of, there's a bomb in Bunny's bedroom. <laughs> Where can it be? No. <laughs> Isn't that so terrible? So that was, of course, yeah. we never did that. But we had to, you had to kind of, it was easy to come up with dreadful ideas. Oh, you know? I bet. I imagine. So, so it was really an interesting, really good workout, but it was very stressful at the same time. And mm. I was also torn because they didn't have the budgets to spend the money to make them really quality. But I was mm. always wanting to, tr- even though I had this limit, I always wanted the insides to to be really good. I mean, yeah. truthfully, a, a packager at that point, it was more about the format. It was more about, oh, this is a, a book that squeaks. But I was always wanting, okay, yes, but I, I don't want it to be awful. I, it has to be. So, again, it was a good workout to try and really bring excellence, even in that situation where you're limited. Yeah. So then how did you, is that when you came to America after so that? So then after that, I saw a job advertised in the bookseller, which is the magazine, publishing magazine in London. And it said um, a job for a senior editor and I was, a, I, was by, I was an editor at that point, senior editor in Westport, Connecticut. And it was another packager, but it was called Joshua Morris. And I thought, oh, that sounds very nice and old-fashioned. Like, oh, maybe I can get back to how it was at OUP, mm-hmm. having worked in this crazy, you know. And I had never been to America, but my parents had been to America, and they loved it. And my dad used to work for a, a, a firm called Allied Chemical in out of Houston, and... So I was around, and also in my childhood, we knew a lot of navigators, you know, the navigators. Yeah. And so my experience with Americans was wonderful. Yeah. And so even though I'd never been to America, I thought, okay, so I get offered this job. I I meet two 
guys. And I realized Joshua Morris actually isn't old fashioned. It, Josh was the name of one guy and Mike Morris was the name of the other. And they just put the names together. So that was my first clue that this was not OUP. But they were wonderful. The first, the, the main guy, Mike, was he's English, but he'd lived in America a long time. So he had a sort of transatlantic, I couldn't quite work out, accent. The other guy had a big mustache and looked like Magnum. You know that guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he was really typical Welcome American. To America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I met them in London. And this guy, Josh, spoke really fast. And I, it came a point where I just couldn't keep saying to him, what, pardon, what? So I just kept saying yes. So I have no idea what I agreed to, but I got the job. <laughs> That's so, wonderful. And when I was offered the job, I remember doing two things that were, you know, I, first of all, I did Bible roulette, which you're never supposed to do. But mm. I thought, should I take this, God? Is this, you know, because it's a huge thing, you know, but I was thinking I'll go for a year. I mean, how hard can that be? I'll go for a year. And if it's really, and I was thinking this may not be good for my career. This shows you how you just don't know what's what, because really I should be in London because I need to work in picture books as an editor. That was my goal. So I'm thinking, okay, this job isn't really picture books. I, I should be in picture books. But anyway, maybe just a year will be all right. And the and so I did Bible roulette as I was deciding. And it went to, I can't remember, is it Isaiah? Uh, stretch, um, what is it? Uh, widen the, uh, stretch your tent wide and don't hold back. Mm. I think it's, I can find that and tell you. But yeah, yeah. that was the first thing. And I, I just thought, wow, that's really... Don't hold back. Stretch your, sorry, <laughs> stretch your tent. Well, I'll find that. And then the other thing I thought was, what if I say no, I'm only saying no because I'm afraid. And that can't be a reason. And then I thought, okay, fast forward all years later, what if I am saying now to my relatives and grandchildren or whatever, um, you know, children, once upon a time, I nearly went to America. The end. And I thought, that's a dreadful story. I can't have that story. So I really went thinking, I can't let fear stop me. And it seems like I'm supposed to you know, stretch my tent pegs wide and not hold back. So I went with that. And, it, and then I also had the wisdom from my parents who'd lived in Africa. They'd been with Shell and Shell had always told them these things about being abroad, that you should, the first six months, you're going to think, the country you've arrived in is the best thing ever. The next six months, you're going to think the country you've left is the best thing ever. Mm. And it's only after a year that you can trust yourself. So that was so helpful because then I gave myself a year to say, so when I had really hard times, and there were hard times where I thought, what am I doing and why am I here? And it's all so lonely. And, but after a year, I'd made great friends. I had a great church. And it was then that I thought, oh, well, I'll, okay, I'll stay longer than a year. Of course, that was in 89. So what did I know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know? So so I started work for Joshua Morris, and it was packaging on steroids. It was the most stressful, most fun. I learned so much. I learned from that editor, from Mike Morris. He would say, when you look at a cover, you have to be like a Martian. You have to look at it as if you have no idea what's in this book. You've never seen a book before. You've never even seen a children's book. And that, the training he gave me mm. was like boot camp that has been so integral to my work now because everything I do is illustrated. Yeah. I have, I have been so well trained for 
asking those questions and having a visual sense. And that combined, of course, with art history, which back then I didn't know it was leading, but you couldn't ask for a better preparation. It's better even than English. Hmm. So, yeah, so I'm really grateful to Joshua Morris. And I worked in Westport for like, uh, I guess I was with them until the big change. But, you know, yeah. it got bought by Reader's Digest. So Joshua okay. Morris was a small, dynamic company of about 30 people. So there's a real sense of community, and I love yeah. that. It was very exciting and terrifying. You know, we'd have to come in in the morning. Monday morning, we had to go into an editorial meeting with each of us with five new ideas. Can oh, you imagine? Oh, my goodness. I mean, on Monday morning, so terrifying. <laughs> almost in a panic now just hearing that I know it was horrible I don't have to do it but you we had I had such good friends that I still am in front you know friends with and again what an amazing boot camp you know Hmm. at the time I would have said this is awful I'm not really doing what I like and it's not picture books and but I'm in America so it's okay now I look back and think gosh what better what better workout for just coming up with ideas yeah you know and doing it yeah, that's wonderful. So at what point, this is, I'm here in six or seven years, I yes, guess, after yeah. post, post-university. Yeah. At what point did you start writing a book? So apart from like, doing like your own, own like, right. I am going to write right. a book. So it really didn't happen. Well, I then got, I guess I got some freelance work while I was still in public, you know, working mm-hmm. for this packager. And I did a few of the similar kind of packager books on the side. Yeah. But again, I wouldn't really count those because this is packaging. I really mm. didn't start writing until I got laid off. And, you know, that's the classic thing, isn't right? it? Right, yeah. Um, but one thing to add is, in this whole scheme of mine, I'd been brought up as a Christian, going to church since I was a little girl. The last thing I wanted was to work in the Christian publishing world. Hmm. Because my feeling was, I am drawn to, like, I loved the training I got at OUP. I love that I was getting training that would stand up to everything and not just be for the Christian world. And I did, I think I just didn't want to be in a little holy huddle. I wanted to be, you know, so that was my plan. So I take this job at Joshua Morris in America. It's a secular, everything like that. But my boss, Mike, finds out I'm a Christian, which I'm not, of course, I'm not hiding. And after about three years into the job, he's, he gives me a Bible story book because he knows I'm a Christian. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that led to all kinds of other Christian books. And before you knew it, I was the publisher of Christian children's books within that company. So what makes me laugh is God changed the job on me. (laughs) So I never wanted to be in the Christian publishing world. So what he did was gave me what I what I wanted was in a general publisher. I became publisher, you know, packager of Christian children's books. And why I'm telling you that is that was crucial to me ending up writing the Jesus Storybook Bible because I got a name of someone who knew how to create children's books for the Christian market. And none of that was my plan. I was actually like trying to get away from that. Wow. Which again tells you God knows best and the way he does things is so not what we expect. But now I I thank him that I was given that Bible stories. I was able to tell Mike, who's now died unfortunately Mm. but I was able to tell him how grateful I was to him because first of all for him and he wasn't easy to work with and I would say that to his face but he has taught me so much and you know this whole workout that we had to do the boot camp 
not only that, but the fact that he gave me the Bible stories because that gave me the name that then gave me gave me an expertise that then I was able to do the Jesus Storybook Bible. So, yeah. so is that the is that the first book you wrote, the Jesus Storybook Bible? No, my first book was called Handbag Friends. Oh, and, and that's that one, one of my favorite books. It's out of print now, but huh. funnily enough, that was with David Fickling, okay. who is the editor at OUP. How fun is that? So again, Small World, and illustrated by Sue Heap, who was a friend from OUP, who was a designer there, who had become an illustrator. She and I connected after I got laid off. I connected with her, because you know, this is what happened. I got laid off and I thought, if I don't, I still had the dream of writing. And for some reason, in that layoff, I just knew I wasn't going to go back into corporate. Because what had happened mm. was Joshua Morris was bought by Reader's Digest and it went from being like small 30 people to being part of this ginormous corporation. And it was, for me, like a little frog being slowly boiled. You know, I just wasn't in my element. And in huge layoffs of 40%, I was, you know, laid off. But for some reason, I just had this sense in me, I can't, I can't keep doing that. And if, and I, I just thought, well, if I don't do it now, when will I ever? And I've got, I, I was so desperate that I just thought the, the fear was, you know, the not finding out was worse than the fear of doing it. You know, I needed to find out. It, it got to that point where I was like, I can't not find out. At least if I know I can't write, I'll know, and then I can move on. Rather than all these years of loving writing, but not really going for it. So I contacted Sue, we connected, and we, she was already doing picture books, and I sort of would ask her questions about what is, how do they work and what do you do. And meanwhile, my little niece was about three, and her brother was about five, and he just wanted to play, you know, trench warfare and battles and all that kind of well, stuff. yeah. Of course. He's a dude. And, all, and she had only him to play with, but she would always go into battle carrying a pink handbag. And I couldn't even, it just did my heart. It just made me want to cry and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I've learned whenever I have that feeling, I have to listen. So mm. I was fascinated by this. It just got me. And I said to her, Olivia, what do you keep in your handbag? And she sort of looked at me like I was just completely, how could I not know? I, and she said, my friends. And then she picked out of that handbag a plastic carrot, a purple troll. It was just so sweet. So handbag friends, that was in my head. And I was also talking to Sue. And we, we just brainstormed together. And we laid out, because we both worked at OUP, we both knew how a book works. So we laid out a paper dummy. And the first, and it was, and because I was scared of writing, I wasn't writing a story. So I was doing a sort of like little captions. Mm. And so we did like 12 spreads, first spread, little captions, you know, it was handbag map, a map of the handbag world. No, planet, planet handbag. And then the next one was, uh, you know, handbag shops where their little baby handbags are born. The world was sort of starting to happen, but it was the final spread when we were really tired that we did handbag friends. That's what we called the last spread. And we sent it into David Fickling and he said, I'll publish this, but I think there's more to it. And I think it's handbag friends and Sally, you need to write a story. And when he said that to me, like all the color went out of my head because mm. it was like, okay, now I'm going to find out. I can't do it. I'm not capable. And he, and he saw it in me and he said, well, I can get someone else to do it, of course. And I went, no, no, I, I need to do it. And it was one of those moments where 
I was faced with the challenge. Am I going to do it or am I going to chicken out? And because I was so desperate at this point for all those years of not risking it, I was ready to, even though I felt sick. And so I, I just prayed. I just felt like, Lord, you've got to help me because you know how much I've dreamed of writing. And I felt like God just helped me see that, you know, the idea is the seed. I already have the idea and it's up to God what the harvest is, but my job is to show up. And that freed me. And so what I would do is I would show up at the morning and I wouldn't do it in order, but I would show up at my computer and I'd wait for the, I had these characters, six characters, and I would wait for them to chat to me. And it sounds crazy, not to anyone who's creative, but anyone who isn't. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like I it's, wish it sounded crazy. <laughs> um, and this whole story came out and it's one of the best things I've written, I think. But I, and I, and then the next thing was to send it to David, right? So I'm like, okay. And it had a baddie in it called Clasp, which is a big bad handbag. So it's really fantastic. And it had a, it's got a story in it. I mean, it's got a song in it, which the big bad handbag song and then the, the handbag friends song. It's got everything you could and possibly it's out of want. Print? It's like, I know. This is the best sales pitch for. I know. I mean, what, a, what a stupid thing. I'm pitching something no one will ever want. <laughs> but but I, I still live in hope that it will come out again. But he, I, I faxed it to David. And the best thing he could have said is what he said, because you want, if he'd said it's a great story, that's great. But what mm -hmm. he said was, I love the voice. Mm -hmm. And if you say that, then you know, and he's very, that's why he's such a great editor. He knew I needed to know, because the evidence suddenly, the evidence outside was different than what my head was telling me. Like he, here was someone I really respected telling me he loved my voice, which is what you want as a writer, isn't it? Your voice yeah. will go into all of your writing. So that was my first book. And everyone said it was going to be great and we were going to have movies and TV. And so I went, you know, it was my first book. I'm like, yeah, of course that's going to happen. And in England, it, it did great. We got great reviews in the, every main thing, times and everywhere. But the thing about publishing is if it's published in England and then it comes to America, that sort of means it's like an orphan book because there's no one in the American publisher who's been invested in it. Mm. And it was the other part I have to tell you that it was shaped like a handbag, which made it fantastic for children. Oh, yeah. But for Barnes and Noble or someone like that, they didn't know where to put it. And it's a 64 page, three episode adventure. And they put it in the novelty book, which isn't where it belonged. It belonged yeah. with picture books. And it didn't do anything. And it was the most disappointing thing. It was awful because I was like, oh, nothing? How could that be? But here's the thing if I had had that be the big deal success first of all i probably would have ended up doing not that i would have minded because i loved those characters but i would have done you know like yeah. you end up doing you have to do everything on the that handbag friends go on yes. a picnic they yes. go to school yeah <laughs> exactly and because it didn't do well i was hard up i didn't have enough money and when a publisher wanted an older bible and i wasn't really i had no idea that i wanted to do because again i was like i know that where I'm called is to all children. So in my limited view, I thought if I do a Bible, that's for church and that's not what I'm called to. That doesn't bring me, that's not what I want. You know, I feel like my purpose is to reach children who'd never go to church and mm. to tell stories, not just Bible stories. I want to tell every story. Yeah. Um, but I needed the money. So I agreed to do it, signed up a contract with Zondervan for, a, a Jesus, for the Jesus Storybook Bible, had no vision for what it might be, and it was only as I started to write it, as I was, no, start, as I started to research it, if you'd asked me before, I'd have said, I'll do a really good job. 
and get the money and then move on to what God's calling me to do. But after, but there was a before and after. After once, and I know it was basically. I feel like God. It's God who gave me the idea. He got me in a position where where I I was ready to receive it, and I sudden my imagination caught fire, and then I would have said, I don't care about the money. I'm going to give this if if I can write it the way C.S. Lewis would write something like this. If I can do, if I can do cliffhangers. If I can tell a story that's really beautiful then I'm all in. And after that, there was no looking back and it wasn't about the money. It was like, I was doing it because I loved it. And of course, the downside of that is then you've got to fight for it because mm -hmm. it's your baby, it's everything. And, you know, I gave it everything and um, it was a very, very difficult process because it, I wasn't really, I didn't have a, any track record as a writer. I was working with a team that didn't have the vision for it. They've all left now. But their vision was, set, you know, produce Bibles, produce Bibles. They weren't really, they didn't have the same idea of excellence. And for me, I knew you don't get given something like this every day. And at one point, I felt like God really um, convicting me of my people pleasing because I want everyone to like me. So I was in danger of, in order to please the editor, kind of throwing away the, the book. Like, was I going to fight for the book or please the editor? So I constantly had to keep standing up for this book. And I could do it in the end because I realized it wasn't about me. Once I realized, oh, wait a minute, because at one point I thought I'll take my name off the book because I can't bear how bad this is going to be in terms of the art. But when I thought of that, it didn't make me feel better. So then I realized, oh, it's not really about me. So then I can fight. And so I, I learned, and that was a workout. That was a boot camp of standing up for excellence because excellence, you know, if you get if you make it excellent, it will reach everyone. If you don't make it excellent, you won't, because that's just how it works. And excellence removes all the barriers. So and excellence has personality. Mm, that's interesting. You know, part of what makes that book so beautiful, and I'm, I don't know how many times I've read that book. I have mm. three daughters. I've read it at least five or six times. Mm. You know, a couple times with each of them. But especially knowing you, nobody else. If I, it's so clear that it was written by one person telling mm. one story, because mm. because there is one voice in it. Yes, and it, I can, without knowing the story of that, I it feels like something someone fought for. Really? Oh, that's so interesting. You know, and I feel like that a lot yeah. of great, yeah, art does. I think it you know, is. and you, what makes some of the you know the classic records or the classic movies, the classic, it's that, it's that they told us the story of as much of the author as they did the story, yes. you know? And yes, it comes from a place of, yeah, it's your, people say, what made you write the book? Well, I feel like your whole life. I mean, my mm. whole life went into that book. Yeah. From being a little girl who thought it, that God wanted me to be good and then he'd love me or mm. brave like Daniel and then he'd love me. That comes from a real six-year-old's experience, you know, and then that fuels your passion that no child should think that. And so, you know, that goes into it. But of course, the team is now wonderful that I work with. But I think it was also the fact that it was hard at every turn. You know, there's obviously the spiritual element. And I also think that means then none of us can say, oh, well, it's because I did this that it's done so well. Because I know if God hadn't been over that book, because things happened that were miraculous, you know, that made it possible for it mm. to happen. Because there came a point when I was just going to take the book back. I was just going to pay the advance back 
and keep it because I couldn't bear it to be published wrong. And then everything turned around. Well, wow. then suddenly they were interested in doing it right. And, and it's amazing because that's a publisher who later one of the top people came to me and said, and this, I, I tell this story because I have so much respect for this because I don't know how many publishers would do this. One of the top guys came to me and he said, you know, you knew what you had way before we did and I need to apologize to you. Well, that's, isn't that amazing? Wow, that's a gift that not a lot of people no. get. No, yeah. and I, that, I tell that because, you know, I don't want to make out the publisher wasn't, because they're doing a great job now, but at the time, God used it in me to strengthen me so that I'm able to say, I know this is this needs to be different. This cannot be like this. And it's meant that the books that have come out with them, they are excellent. And, you know, even things like David Suchet, I could ask for him to be the audio, you know, the narrator of the Jesus Storybook Bible because I knew it wasn't about me. Hmm. It made me much bolder. I think that's the thing. If I know it's not about me, I can be bold. Yeah. And... It's when I think it is about me that it gets all wrong, <laughs> as with everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's really, that's amazing. Can I, um, I'd love to go back to something that you've said yeah. a couple times. Uh, you said that you took you took your first job editing because you didn't think you could be a good writer. Yeah. And then you said you were scared of being, of writing. Yes. They asked you to write. Why, you've wanted to write for this whole time. Yeah. Why did you think you were bad at it? Why, what kept you from... I think, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, and I still struggle with it. I mean, you know, I'm only as good as my latest book. I think a lot of artists are like that, aren't they? And I just think I thought, yeah, and I like to tell people, anyone who's wanting to write, I thought a children's book writer had to sound like something else. You know, I, I would look at other writers and think, oh, that's how you write when you're a children's writer. And it was David Fickling again who freed me because when I was frightened of writing handbag friends, he said, just write what makes you laugh. And I thought, Oh, well, I know what makes me laugh. And I just went for it. And I think the, the truth is if you trust that what makes you laugh or what moves you, that's what you have to write. You don't write what someone else, like you don't try and be JK Rowling. She's much better at being JK Rowling. <laughs> you know, you're just going to be an awful imitation mm -hmm. that may not even, you know, but if you, and I think C.S. Lewis said something along these lines that if you try and be original, you never will be. Hmm. But just being true to your voice, you'll be original without trying. You won't be able to help it because you'll be you. Yeah. And so that's always steered me. You know, I try and stay with that. So I think that's why I thought I was not good because I was comparing myself to all these other people and not valuing what came easy. You know, what's interesting, often we don't value the thing that actually comes fairly easily. Like, I found it quite easy to make people laugh, but I didn't value that. And I didn't value what I found easy. I valued what I couldn't do. You know, so I would think, oh, I'm never going to be like whatever, fill in the blank. But I think once I was free to say, oh, it's only, you just write what makes you laugh and it, it will work. Well, not always, of course. <laughs> but, you but, know, yeah, that freed me. You're eventually going to find it. And way. yeah. You know, my, you know, so the other thing about the Jesus Storybook Bible is it is for all children. That's, I just didn't have a big enough view. Hmm. So my calling is to all children. And I'm passionate about writing all kinds of books. And I always want people who love the Jesus Storybook Bible to realize how many other books I've got that are just as, you know, they, they do different things. But, I, you know, for instance, I wrote a potty training book because 
if I can, you know, a toddler, right? I think when they're trying to be trained to go on the potty, it's akin to asking a grown up, please stand up in front of a thousand people now and give a speech <laughs> without any preparation. That's, I think, what a toddler feels like when they go to, they're told to go on the potty. So if I can bring comfort and laughter yeah. to a little toddler, to me, that's just as pleasing. Well, I've realized God is just as pleased with that book as he is with a Bible story book hmm. or a book about, um, I've written a book called Baby Wren and the Great Gift. And it's about a little wren who doesn't see that he, she's tiny and she's in a huge canyon and she doesn't see that she's got any place in the world. But she finds out, no, she actually does. You know, she has her voice. Hmm. And so I have these, I love to, you know, just, bring joy to children is really, yeah. I think, what my job is. And I always want to encourage parents who love the Jesus Storybook Bible to also know stories are so powerful and they don't have to be Bible stories. You know, I mean, a lot of people, obviously people know that, but I always love to take, love to get them to, you know, my new book coming out is called um, King Baby, a terrible, His Royal Highness King Baby, a terrible true story, <laughs> which, you know, comes from my, I'm an older sister, older sister and I know how traumatic it is when a baby comes to, for the older sibling it's terrible you know because they're having to be all you know most books on that or at least a lot of books tend to be a bit worthy or at the mm. child's expense so they're saying immediately in the book it's like oh and you your friend and this is so lovely and aren't you mm -hmm. lucky but the truth is for that child there's a lot of complicated feelings you know yeah they're being ousted and so this story is a child's mm. in the child's voice of as if she's Cinderella and she's, you know, a poor orphan child who has to get her own breakfast while the poor king baby is, you know, it's all of <laughs> that. Baby. And it, it turns out okay in the end, but... I feel I, like I know I some love... adults that that book could I know, it's so <laughs> that's so true. So I'm very grateful that God's given me... I, I love picture books and I get mm. to write them. I mean, it's... The, I, I sometimes... I caught myself, you know, I'm working with some fantastic picture book publishers and... Truthfully, I used to dream of working for them, and here I am, and they're working for me in a way. And I, I get to be colleagues with them. And I was at a book signing for this new book in, in, in New York, and I just was thanking the Lord because I'm like, I never would have believed this. I wasn't mm. thinking nearly big enough. Mm. And it's such a – when you can be – when I'm in that place of gratitude, it's the best. Yeah. I wish I could be there more, you know, instead of – moaning and oh this and that and comparing which is so terrible yeah you know the truth yeah 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 that's wonderful but recounting well, I, his faithfulness really isn't it when you look back you yeah. see how he guided you and everything was planned it didn't seem it at the time hmm. how old were you when you finally wrote your first book Do you probably know? like 42 which is very old i mean first proper book yes 43 42 or 43 Wow. That's kind of scary. How late, you know, that sounds like, oh, you should have done it by now, right? And uh, the other thing I'd say to people. But also that's percolate. Uh, to me, I know, I, I, mean, I, I know that feeling, but that's also, I'm 38, so that's yeah. encouraging. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think in the time it took, the other thing, you know, I was doing when I was in, as an editor, I was kind of saying to myself, I wish, you know, I'm. it's too late and I, if I, you know, now I, I, when I got laid off, I was tending to say to myself, I wish I would have done this sooner. I wish I would have, what if I'd done it when I was 22? What if I'd gone straight into, I did all that what if. But mm -hmm. when I really look at it, the timing of it meant that all the doors opened just at the right time. I don't know that I would have done more than I've done 
Yeah. Even if I'd had all that time and I never would have had the training. Mm -hmm. So you can't really do the what if. And, you know, I wish I could have gone back and told myself, you know, it's going to be fine. Just enjoy right now because God's got it. You know, he's going to work it out. Hmm. Now, it may not always be that you get to do your living with the thing that you sure you had when you were seven, but I think it's always got to be in your life somehow. How do it? you think? How do you think that, or do you think that that idea of sort of who you were at seven and and the, how do you think does that relate to calling? I think and, I, I think mean so. I, that's a that's a loaded word that I yeah I've spent a lot of time recently trying to unpack what that word means. Yeah, I think maybe it's that God plants a dream in your heart that is particular that brings you or maybe it's 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 looking at what brings you alive who is that quote where it says because we need people who've, who are alive i can't remember who hmm. said that no yeah i think it's brennan is it yeah no i don't sounds know. like it could be yeah yeah one of those <laughs> one of those bees um find the thing that brings you alive because the world needs someone who's come alive hmm. something like that and that i think is the key what because what will make you come alive is very different than what someone else. And I love the fact that we're all different and we can't, we need each other, you know, and to realize that every, every piece of creation is, is beautiful and there's no work that is demeaning. There's work, work in itself is God made, isn't it? He made us to create and made us to work. And, you know, I used to think housework, oh, that's so awful. But the truth is, if we didn't have housework, we'd probably all be dead, wouldn't we? We'd be so there'd be sickness, and so the order out of chaos that comes mm. from even sweeping a floor, or gardening, or and then I you see people in New York, the ready, willing, and able people. They have ready, willing, and able on their shirts, which I love. Mm. But I often walk past them and thank God for them because if without them, they're sh they're sweeping, they're emptying the trash, and I know God is pleased with them because that work is you know, it's dignified because it's bringing order out of chaos. And we have this hierarchy of what's worthy and what isn't. But what blows me away is, how did God come? He's a manual labor, laborer. He's a carpenter. Hmm. He comes as a carpenter. I mean, gosh, we all look down on manual laborers, or we can if, in our worst moments, can't we? Mm -hmm. So I just love that. That's a bit off topic. No, but I mean, especially when we look, as our culture does, and as especially maybe it's us as creative people, People mm. who are full-time, yeah. I, I, I hesitate to. Use, I hate the word creatives because I think yes. that's so demeaning to yes. everyone. Yeah. But people who make their living off their creativity, it, we can that can seem like the apex of. Yes. I get to do what I dream for a living. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, I know there are a lot of people who love their work that have, you know, deal with databases. Or I know. Deal with people and making food or you know and things that. And it's probably, maybe it's about all of us having an attitude of service hmm. so that yes we may be very you know feeling very i am i'm very grateful that i've been given words to work with but i can do it selfishly or i can do it in service and it comes down to even when you're telling a story if it's selfish you will hang on to your words and you won't cut any you won't let an editor mess with your words because it's all about you hmm. And especially in a picture book, if you hold on to all your words, then what will happen is you'll have less room for the illustrations. And then what will happen? It'll be awful for the child. So what you've done is you've chosen you over the child. Or you can choose the child and say, it's not about my words. It's about, is this story coming across? And that's when you, as one of my editors says, you break through the author barrier and you get out of the way 
and it becomes about the story and the book and the illustration and the words telling the best story together. And that I love because that that's service. And mm. it can be that then you're in the same service business as the people sweeping the streets or we're all doing it for each other. We're yeah. blessing people. And then I think that stops the hierarchy. It's just we've been, sometimes I think, it's the people who have who are all behind the scenes that never get thanked. They are they're the ones who've been entrusted with a greater thing because you know we get to be thanked. So, yeah, I think of my friends who plowed into my life when I was not believing in myself, and I often say to them because they're not you know they're sort of humble people and they they haven't seemed to be very successful in worldly terms. And I'm always saying to them, yeah, but you, I think God's entrusted to you something really hard. And not that that makes it better for them, but I, I know mm. how much I'm indebted to them. Yeah. Man, that's really beautiful. So now that you have written all these books, do, does writing come easier for you? No. Like today I was writing and I felt like I, w I moved one word here, took it out. <laughs> put it back <laughs> looked on the internet to try and find a name I mean I came down I'd be yeah. down like three hours and I'm like I didn't do a single thing what was the word I was trying to find a name okay which is very hard names are very oh, hard I can't, I, I'll give you some okay <laughs> <laughs> they're very tricksy and then I realized at that point you probably you probably just need to send it in to the editor because you're going crazy hmm. you know once you an editor said to me once you're moving words around and you don't know if you're making it better or not that's probably the time you have to just send it in, hmm. you know. And because you've been an editor, does that allow you to trust an editor, or no. do you do more of that work before you? I send do it a in lot of that. You, yeah, you're kind of like I know how this goes. Well, or more <laughs> like I want to make sure it's really good so they can't reject me. <laughs> That's more where it is. Um, but also, it's really crucial you have to trust your editor. I mean, I'm sure that's like that in the music business. You've got to mm -hmm. trust your producer. Anything like that with a director you've got to know that you trust their judgment so i'm i've realized if i'm working with an editor i trust i'm good because then i can you know i'll, I'll hate it when they come back with any changes like anyone you you send mm -hmm. a manuscript and you think they're going to say oh this is the best thing i've ever heard of and i just have no changes let's publish it that's what you're <laughs> hoping for and that never happens right. so when they come back with well i love it and i really do like it and I wonder about this. You just think, well, they hate it. They hate the whole thing. I yeah. can't they write. They hate me. They hate a, me, yes. and I'm no longer a writer. I used to be able to write, but now I can't. So that's where I go. <laughs> Except then I know that if I wait a week, I can usually hear where they're coming from, and I can disagree with some things, but I can hear where they're right. And then mm -hmm. I and then I'm, I really like to change because I think they're going to make me look better. You know, an editor's just going to make you look better, so why wouldn't you, you know? Yeah. But, the, but you have to trust them. If you don't trust your editor, then you're the wrong editor, I think. Hmm. That's good. Where, uh, as an independent musician, I don't have anyone to turn my record into. You know, it's right. just, I work oh, on that's it. hard. I work down here by myself the whole time, and then it's done. That's so hard. Which is not, but having been in that position, I yeah. mean, I've had people in my career at certain points, I've had to turn things into A&R guys or, or managers or whatever. And um, having been in that position for other people now, I, I know that, I don't trust myself. Yeah. And so this record that I'm working on now, a couple last week, I called a couple guys and invite, I invited them over to Andrew Peterson's because he's got a place yes. to do it. But I sat there and I played him all these songs and just, okay, tell me what's not working. And it was 
the hardest thing. Of course. Because there are people that are so great and I trust so much. And they would say the same thing. I really like that. What if you, what if you, and yeah. I fought everything and I've made every change that yeah. they made. Because well, they were what all, a gift. They were all smart. Yeah. Because yeah. you'd rather hear it from your friends than a horrible critic. Oh, and it, I'd rather hear it now than yeah. not figure that, it out two right. years ago. Oh, exactly. <laughs> It's not a horrible critic, but, you know, well. critics are lovely when they like your work and you hate them when they don't. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's a really a gift when people you trust can give you yeah. feedback, isn't it? So now do you feel like an author? Do you feel like you I, wake up in the morning and you say, I'm an author? Well, sometimes I walk around New York and I think, how do I get to be so fortunate? That's how I think mm. of it. And I think, but, no, I, I think if you think too much about being an author, then you're going to go into that direction of, it's all about me. You're going to start wearing berets. Yeah, I don't like <laughs> And I, I like the idea that I'm, what I think of is I'm an, I'm an ambassador for children because I, for some reason, I get where they're coming from. So mm. when I'm walking down the street in New York, I always catch, it's always children's eyes I catch. And mm. I love that because it's a reminder to me, you know, it's like God saying to me, they're your bosses. You better be good. So if I keep my eyes on those little toddlers that I catch their eyes, I think that's my, that was a, what a great job, you that's know, fantastic. That, that I have to be good because I'm working for the best bosses. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I will say before you go, I mean, the Jesus Storybook Bible obviously is, obviously that's a huge book for you. It's been yeah. a huge book for our family. I've told you about that. I won't, I'm, t- yeah. I don't want to cry on a podcast anymore, so I'm not going to talk <laughs> about it, yeah. but it's wonderful. Uh, some of the most amazing writing I've ever read. Um, but also because people might not know as much about some of the other books. Yeah. My my girls, they love the How to Be a Baby by Me, the Big Sister. That's one of their all-time yes. favorites. I don't know how many hundreds of times we've read that book. Oh, I love that it's book. It's a classic in our house. Oh, so I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for that, that one. Yeah. I'm so glad. And the other I one... have been the cool dad who has gone into the second grade class and read that book. Oh, you are Brought the amazing. house down. Oh, so thank it's... you. Oh, thank you. I love hearing that. That makes me very happy. <laughs> and the other one people have not really heard of is Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, which oh, is the gosh. follow-up to Jesus Storybook Bible, but... I think because it doesn't have Jesus Storybook Bible on it, probably, mm-hmm. even though it's Jago and I, but that one I love doing. And we're going to do another one, mm. but we're going to put Jesus Storybook Bible on it. And it'll be the <laughs> Jesus Storybook Bible devotional. And then everyone will hear about it, hopefully. Isn't that crazy? I know. You just marketing. can't. It just shows you, you just can't control any of that, really. Mm. You just, you go along. And I'm so grateful that, you know, people have heard of Jesus Storybook Bible. I hope I hope it helps them find my other books too. Yeah. Cuz they're like my children. You know, those mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, but I've got other children too, mm-hmm. and they're lovely." <laughs> and you might like them. <laughs> Do, will you tell us a little bit cuz I know you, I've heard this you tell the story of Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that one again came well not again. That that one came because my niece was about six and she had been this very vivacious little girl who sang her way through life and was like in the movie of the book of her life of the play of the you know that whole thing (laughs) and one time she called me from from England and said Sally I want to be an opera singer she was about six and I said oh Emily that's lovely and then she went what is an opera singer I mean that was the kind of child she was and I just it just does you in I know and then she became really withdrawn and and Mm. quiet and we found out she was being bullied at school which, of, of course, was heartbreaking. And I asked her at the time, you know, why did you change? And she said, I, st- I thought if I stopped being myself, I'd stop getting in trouble. And I couldn't bear that. And I said to her, what are you reading before you go into school? And she showed me this sort of workbook, which may have been good in another context, but was so unhelpful. It was all like the little boy and his lunch and how you've got to, you know, 
a feeding of 5,000, little boy shared his lunch and so you must share your lunch. And I thought, how many of us as grown-ups, what if we were being bullied in our work, you know, and having to go into a, because I think we're all, you know, we can all be bullied, can't we? Mm -hmm. You go into a board meeting with the bullies and you go in there and share your lunch. Is that a good idea? No, I don't think so. What would you want as an adult? You'd want You'd want to read something that morning that told you God was with you, reminded you of his power, reminded you that he was with he was in control of everything. And I thought, why is it with children we don't realize they need that too? The devotional is the time you don't that's one area in their lives they don't need rules, they need grace. Mm. And I thought, I, I wish there was a book she could read that would tell her what God says about her instead of what these bullies are saying. And so then I wrote it. And as I I often have. I often have a, a sort of visual sense of what the book needs to be. And I knew it needs to be so beautiful. It needs to be so beautifully illustrated, crucially, so so beautifully designed that a child would have it on their bedside table and the parents would have to beg them to share it with them. And mm. it's so funny because that's often what I hear is that, that and often children who are being bullied, particularly. Mm. So that's where God's the mystery of God giving you an idea. And also an idea of how it needs to be just guides you. And again, excellence. If it's really beautiful, the child will want it, but like a treasure. And so that's where Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing came. And it's really a book of hope for children, telling them what mm. God says about them. Which is an interesting, and I don't want to read too much into this because I'm not smart enough <laughs> to, to, to do this, but I want to be careful how I say this, but it, your niece had to go through that. Yeah. Which is awful. Yeah. And not that she had to go through that. I don't think she had to no. go through that. So you'd write this beautiful book that would help no. other kids. No. But that one of the beautiful things that happened because of the hard thing that she went through. Yes. Is that, is God's redemption. To, yeah. And also honoring her experience in a way. It, yeah. It's part of her legacy and what mm -hmm. she's done. You know, I often think mm -hmm. that, that we get to, yeah. Yeah, it's just how, how amazing that God can redeem even the most dreadful things. Yeah. And how cool for her to get to look at that book and know that somebody loves her that much to write that book about her or for her. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty sweet. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. I'm very lucky. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to... Thank you. Me, uh, this is wonderful. This has been wonderful too. Thank you. It's We're very chatty, aren't we? We've probably gone on too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Gloria Podcast. <laughs> Sally, thank you so much for your time. That was awesome. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting this podcast. Please visit the new website, everybodypivots.com for updates, back episodes, to get in touch, say hey. Um, that's where you can find the Patreon page if you'd like to help support this podcast. Again, our sponsors are a big help, but they still don't really cover the cost of the time it takes to put this together. So if you'd like to help out, you can find us there. And, you know, honestly, since I'm new to the whole Patreon thing, if you've got suggestions for perks or rewards, let me know. How can we best serve each other? Um, all right, that's it. We'll be back next Monday with our next episode. And season two, we're off. I'm so excited. That's it for us today. Thank you again for listening. Now go do something awesome. <laughs>